so. Uh, again, I hope you've had the opportunity to sort of recapitulate over last week's. I always like being able to use that fancy word. But to basically just review over what we talked about as far as setting a base, because it's so crucial as we get into this and as we move on, and we'll be doing so tonight, talk about Christ in the churches. And so we'll be talking about some of that avenue, and then we'll start getting into some of the meteor stuff that we want to take a look at starting next week with chapters 4 and 5. But I want you to know that the light show is free. Okay, so if anybody has problems with epilepsy, please let us know now. Otherwise, we could have a problem. But I'm looking forward to tonight as we get into the Word. And uh, some of the stuff that we'll be covering, you've heard me talk about before. I'll be bashful about that. Uh, I shared a message, oh, I don't know how many months ago, on who is he now. And we're going to relook at some of that to take a look at who he is now and the reason behind that. Take a look at the churches tonight, and we'll talk about uh, the candlesticks and a few other things that are there. So we're going to get into that tonight. So let's start out by taking a look at his words, starting with Revelation 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I always like it when they talk about trumpets. It's just good. And, but, but notice what it says. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, but he, said, but he, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Hi, guys. Want to underscore, I did not put this in your notes, but you need to add the last verse of the chapter, which is verse 20. It's not on the screen either, so I'm sorry. And it simply says, and you know this one, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Basically, it's Jesus giving the interpretation to what's happened here before. Now, in this first vision, that's what we're starting with, this first vision, and I would like you to note that as we go through these visions, as we go through we will gradually begin to see how each one contributes some understanding. And not when I, when I say understanding, it's understanding to the present age here, the age in which you and I live, in relation to the first coming and the grand finale coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come to this particular vision, I want us to get into the head of John again. This is something we'll, we'll continue to talk about and repeat. He has gone into a cave which overlooks the Mediterranean. There's a good tradition, by the way, on the Isle of Patmos, if you're ever traveling in the Mediterranean area. You can go to Patmos today, and the cave that they will take you to, there's every reason to believe that that is the cave, that, the very cave that John had went to. It, it says that, it was on the Lord's day. Now, you've probably heard me share on this before, but understand the Christians of Ephesus were the first ones to describe Sunday as the Lord's day. And by the time A.D. 95 comes along, they were beginning to call Sunday 
the Lord's Day everywhere. It was really out of a Roman tradition. And the Roman tradition was, if you remember, that whatever day of the week on which the emperor ascended to the throne during the lifetime of that emperor, that would be called Emperor Day. So if the emperor ascended to the throne, let's say, on a Wednesday, then Wednesday was always called Emperor Day. Every week, during the week, during the reign of the emperor. Well, the Christian in that part of the world began to call Sunday the Lord's Day because that was the day in which Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to his throne, and was crowned the king of the universe. So, Emperor Day was put aside, and the one day of the week which celebrated the ascension of Jesus was called the Lord's Day. Now, I look at this, and, and, and I ask the question how John got the permission to go to his cave and to worship Jesus on the Lord's Day. I haven't a clue. Maybe it was because they thought he was some really old guy and just said, let the old man do it, you know, kind of thing. But I, I don't know, but it certainly wasn't, not, it, it wasn't a Roman tradition, you know, as far as to have Sunday to be when you set aside a day to worship anybody, let alone the God of the Christians. But he finds himself in his cave on the Lord's Day, and as he is worshiping, he hears a sound behind him which what he states was like a trumpet. Now notice that in verse 10 there in your notes. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now before I get too far here, let me point out two things very quickly. Number one, we are right into the world of symbolism immediately. He, he did not say he heard a trumpet. He said he heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet, which immediately tells me that you're looking for something else. So what happens is my question is, as I approach this, and I'm trying to lay out some tools of how we do this, what is the symbolism of a trumpet? When I read of a trumpet in the book of Revelation, if it is a, you know, if it is a, a book of signs and symbols and tokens, what am I supposed to expect? I, what I do, I go back to the Old Testament. Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you'd be remembering in the Old Testament the first time you heard the sound of a trumpet in a significant way. That would be in the chapter or in Exodus in chapter 19, and there you would find that it was a sound like that of a trumpet that called them where into the presence of God. Okay, put that. The whole company of the Israelites are gathered there in chapter 19 of Exodus, and it says that as the lightning was, you know, flashing, it, it was then like, a, like a, a, a trumpet sound. And it called all the people to hear the words of their covenant God that was speaking to them. Now, it, it's, it's significant that when the New Testament unveiling of the New Covenant, that, that John here is arrested literally by a voice. It just captures his attention like a trumpet calling him. It is a call to the whole covenant people of the new covenant. Come, hear the words of the new covenant. Come, hear the words of the new covenant. Now again, it, it, this is, this is uh, the word I'm wanting to share probably isn't the right word, but this is it's, it's predicated on us understanding covenants, which so many don't. And by the way, when, and this is not a commercial because I'm not selling them, so you don't have to worry about it. Out on the table there with the Hebrew study is, is a, a few uh, binders, booklets of the covenant study, both the old and the new covenant, and what those are and how that represents and all the covenants that lead up to that all the way through. So you want to pick that up? They're out there. But I'm just saying, when you talk about covenants, this is, this, <laughs> this is about the whole covenant people of the New Testament. Who are they? So as he comes, he turns, and it says he seeks, which, if we interpret it literally, he sees something extremely weird. It's a vision of Jesus. 
mean, there's, there's absolutely no doubt about that because he identified himself. <laughs> we read that he said, I am the first and the last. I was dead. I am alive. So it's really no question to who he is or who it is. But if I'm going to say that that is a literal thing that John is actually seeing as if that was Jesus that he saw, then, then I'm going to say it again. That's grotesque. It's weird. It's, it's when you think about it. I mean, honestly, he's got the white hair, then eyes which were, you know, flames of fire, you know, and, and out of his mouth with a big sword sticking out, and, 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 but, but his feet were glowing like, like brass, in, in a furnace, and the whole thing is just, it's just like, you know, that'll keep a kid up at night in nightmares kind of thing. But to think of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, I mean, come on, be real. Really? If that is a literal thing that John saw as the physical person of Jesus, oh boy. I, I, well, I won't go there. Let me go. John saw Jesus. No two ways about that. He saw Jesus. But what he saw was beyond words. The only way he could describe what he saw was by symbolism in which Jesus chose to present himself. He sees this one who is girded with a robe, who has white hair, whose eyes are as fire, whose voice is like the sound of many waters, whose words are like a sword, whose feet are like burnished brass, and who is whole, who's, who, and who is, who, his, his whole person is shining like a noonday sun. So what does it all mean? Just a little consideration without going too far, I think, will tell us what it means. First of all, the robe, as we've described before, the, the long flowing robe with the belt around the breast that was the robe of ancient judges. In fact, this whole thing that we, as we see, shall have a lot to do with judges. A judge in the ancient world was dressed in that fashion, same kind of robe. So here, the person John sees this one who is the final authority, the judge, the final authority among men. He is the one who is man's final and ultimate judge. So his hair, it says it's as white as snow. Now, I, I'm like you. I don't want to think about snow right now, but we've got to, okay? So again, we've got a symbolism among judges with white hair, and we've talked about that. If you go to England, the judges there still wear white hair, right? And depending on what level you're at, depends on the length of your white hair. If you're just a lawyer, well, you just got one little piggy tail coming down the back of your back. But why? That's the question. Why is it that white hair is always associated with man who is able to discern and to judge? Well, you'll notice that in the... Now, let me just pause right here and say, I'm going to be giving you scriptures that you're not going to have in your notes, that you're not going to see on the screen, but I'm going to give them to you so that you'll write down the passage because I'm not going to read the whole section just parts, but like in the book of Proverbs, it talks about white hair being the sign of maturity and wisdom. And, 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 and with white hair, it always speaks of somebody who has been around a long time. That's not the right word, okay? And they've found out all the answers, and they can discern, and they can judge, except in this case, it says his hair was as white as snow. Back in Daniel chapter 7, you'll read of one who was called the Ancient of Days and his white hair. You're not talking about one who is, you know, in, as far as time language is concerned, that's been around for a long time. This is the eternal one whose hair is white as snow. In other words, here is ultimate judgment. Here is the person, this, this, this one who stands... And what you have here is the wisdom of God. You'll find him in Proverbs chapter 8 where wisdom personified speaks of his eternal relationship with God the Father. You'll find him in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 when it says Christ is made unto us wisdom 
Or in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, where it says that in him there is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The ultimate wisdom of God is focused in Jesus Christ. So when I see him, he is the judge of all men who judges and orders the affairs of men in absolute wisdom, which is achieving the most perfect end in the most perfect way. It's, it's the glory of God. W what about his eyes? Now, I've, I've seen my wife's eyes were fire, but no. <laughs> but his eyes were as a flame of fire. You know what fire does? It burns through our mass. That's what it does. It burns through all that appears in order to discover what really is. Remember in John chapter 10, Jesus spoke of himself as the shepherd, the eternal wise shepherd, the final authority in his flocks. And he says, I know my sheep. You can stand in front of him and you can jive all you want, but he knows us. We all stand before the ultimate shepherd whose eyes are as a flame of fire to burn through all of our facades and all of our masks, and we are known better than we know ourselves. I think Paul stated that when he said that no man judged him, and he didn't judge himself either. He says, there is one who judges me. He says, if I went by the judgment of men, I, you know, I would have been a dead man a long time ago. If I went by my own judgment sometimes, I'd be a dead man because in my despair, I judge myself without mercy. He said, I prefer to place myself beneath the eyes of the flames of fire. And that's because he knows me perfectly. Now, I'll say this because in my book, that had to be a terrifying experience as well as something glorious. When Isaiah, for example, met this one whose eyes are as a flaming fire, he suddenly met the one who knew him perfectly. You remember what he said? I am undone. And when Saul of Tarsus was known even as he was known, he fell off his horse and said, Lord, what would you have me to do? It's that coming into his presence of that one who knows me perfectly. Then you have his voice. It says that voice was like the sound of many waters. Again, you know, studying this, I, I knew what it meant, but what did it really mean? I, I've shared it before, but I, I remember when I was, was a young guy in a, in a musical marching group that was called the Music Delights. We went all over the place. We went to a trip uh, to be in a parade up in, in, in Niagara Falls. And I remember as we had those extra days going to Niagara Falls on the Canadian side and, and hearing the sound, the power of this majesty of water coming just over the edge. And it was, you know what? You stood there and, and there's a fear, but there's an awe. And yet there's a harmony when you think about all that water that is going over. I'm expecting it to stop because, man, that's a lot of water that's going over those falls. And yet it sounds as one sound. It is a sound of perfect beauty, perfect harmony. It's awesome. It's frightening power and a majesty that strikes wonder into the heart. John said it was the sound of many waters. He says that his voice reduced me to fear. And yet at the same time, it exalted me to such a, a worship, such a beauty of worship, such a harmony. And, and it struck awe. It, it struck wonder. And, and, and I'll, I'll, he says, I never will forget his voice. He said, and, and, and the words that were in those, that voice, they were, they were like a, a sword that was coming out of his mouth, a sword that defeated all enemies that would attack the church. But at the same time, a sword that would prune his church. Remember the picture, or the scripture, I should say, that, the, that says that the sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God. 
And remember in Hebrews 4.13, he says that that sword of God's word is able to divide asunder soul and spirit, bone and marrow. That, that is the only word that can. And, and, and I, I say that because it's that majestic. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's the wondrous voice, the, the words that defeat the enemy and at the same time cut away all that excess growth that we <laughs> end up building up. And, 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 and with that, the undergrowth that is hurting the church. It says his feet like burnished bronze in the fire. Now, if you're familiar with Leviticus and Numbers, you remember that, that brass is that of judgment. In other words, whenever you find brass in the scripture, if it is in symbolic context, it is speaking of judgment. Now, this judgment is in his feet. He walks. He says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. So wherever he goes, his enemies are judged before him. Now remember when they took the Ark of the Old Testament, every time that the Ark moved, Moses was to bring the whole camp together and he would cry out those words, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Did you know when David wrote a psalm to that effect, he begins with the psalm with those words. It, it was, by the way, it was written on the occasion of the ark being returned into Jerusalem. That's when he wrote that. And it begins, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Then he goes on to say, let them melt like wax before him, like, me like wax melts before the flame. Let them be blown away like the smoke before the wind. You get the picture. What you're getting the picture of is of the enthroned God who's marching. He's on the move. And as he comes with feet like burnished brass, his judgment scatters the enemies. They melt like wax. They disappear like the wind. Hey, I'm going to tell you straight up. And, and please, I, I, that's why I love getting a picture of this thing. Nothing can stop the onward march of the church of Jesus Christ. Hello? His feet burn like brass. Then you have the face that shone in the sun. You know as well as I do, this face suns up the whole person. If I was to give you a picture of my knees, even though I have the best looking legs around, I agree. You wouldn't appreciate it if I said that was a picture of, of me. Uh, th that's me, yes, but you would only appreciate a front view of my face. And if I gave you a view of my face, even though that's a limited part of my body, you'd accept that as a picture of me. No other part of me is going to do as far as describing me, but my face will. So, again, when you look at the face of Jesus, it describes his whole person. It says that it's shown like the sun. There are references throughout the scripture to this shining like the sun. For example, in Malachi chapter 4, it says the son of righteousness would rise with healing in his rays. And the result of his touching us with the rays of his son is that you shall dance like calves in a stall. It's a picture I don't want in my head. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, it says that the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter. It, 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 in the whole person of Jesus, there has burst into darkness of our world the full sun, S-U-N, of God's love. And God's grace and God's mercy you're talking about the finality of God's plans. Now, remember what we said. We're not looking for details. That's one thing I want to continue to underline. We run through those details to get the whole picture. That's the idea. What did John see when he turned around in that cave? 
It was as if he was looking into the face of the sun. Someone was speaking in their words. He said, I'll never forget them. Such majesty, such beauty, such harmony, so terrible, but yet wonderful at the same time. He said the words, they cut me. And at the same time, they're defending. I, I see him as he walks. Nothing can stand before this one oh, so wise. He is the wisdom of God. He is the ultimate judge of all men. You get in the picture. He saw Jesus, and when he saw him, he went, hey, Jesus. No, he didn't, did he? He fell at his feet as dead. There's a huge difference between the Jesus who walked among us in the flesh and the Jesus who ascended king of kings and lord of lords. When John was with Jesus who walked with us in the flesh, you remember he'd just sit there beside me and lay his head on his shoulder and whisper in his ear, let's go to intimacy. But when he sees Jesus now, he fell at his feet like someone dead, paralyzed in fear, wonder, Love, yes, but he's unable to move. So what I'm asking is, please understand, I, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but in the book of Revelations, we are not dealing with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is now dead. I, I, I think we must constantly take into consideration Philippians 2. It, to me, it's the key to the Christian understanding of Jesus. Jesus, listen, is the name of his humiliation. When I say Jesus, I am talking about God in coveralls, overalls. He is, he is God come among us. Because Jesus, that's, that's his human name. Even his enemies call him Jesus. Christ is his title. Even the demons call him Christ. But God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name. And at that name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and confess he is Lord. Hello, somebody. Now, no man can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit says 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. What, what is the name that God gave him which is above every name? The name of the Lord. And from that moment and th that Jesus rose from the dead, they always then from that point would address him as Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Messiah. When John met this one in the cave, he did not go up and put his head on his shoulder. There was no special music going on, you know, like, lay your head on my shoulder. You really need to pray for me, I'm telling you. No. He fell at his feet as one who was dead. You can put your face on the shoulder of Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, yes, you can. Because he was God completely clothed in flesh among us. But upon his ascension, he is the man who has fully realized Godhead. He is who, who eternally was God, fully realized manhood. And when he had totally accomplished his father's purpose as a man, he was a man who was totally under, who totally understood Godhead. Now, I'm going to be honest, and I've said this before, and I hope you don't get mad at me because we are getting close to Christmas, but that little baby Jesus, I'm not awestruck by this little baby. I, I know sometimes you feel guilty, you know, that you're supposed to really feel something for this little baby. Oh, no, I don't. I, I certainly do not believe that G little Jesus is, is running around, uh, you know, this, this earth with, with, with a halo any more than I believe that an adult Jesus had a halo on his head. Only at times when Jesus 
when, when they saw a miracle, did they say, Lord, man, you're a wonderful person. But after he ascended, he fell at his feet as dead. For there he saw the fullness of deity expressed in glorified manhood. Now that's a lot to say. I hope you chew on that one for a while. But what I'm saying is here's the author of the book. Jesus, glorified Lord. And here is the subject of the book. Jesus, glorified Lord, unveiled. He describes himself. I am the first and I am the last. That is, I am before a his, all history. And when you have added up all the firsts of earth, then put me next. Because I am the first before all firsts. All beginnings are because he is the, and remember this term, because we'll be using it throughout the study. He is the unbeginning beginning. Hmm. All first things on earth are because he is the unbegun first. I am, he said, I am. I, 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 I mean, I was for, uh, I mean, that would be a simple statement of time. But he doesn't say, well, I am is unbeginning and it is also unending. It is the ever present. And so eternally he's saying, I am first. Therefore, whenever, whenever time says first, you've got to go back to the unbeginning, and he is always first. He's before anything, unbeginning first. He says, I am the last. And again, therefore, everything in the future finds its consummation in him. All began because he is the first, and the only meaning and purpose of all that is to Find the consummation in Jesus Christ. Now, what am I saying in all those words being put together? There is no meaning to history unless Jesus Christ is the key. I, I say that not as a crazy Pentecostal, which I can be. I say that as a student of history, that there is no meaning to the history of all nations of the world unless you find that focused in Jesus Christ. He is the first, he is the last, and that is the great confession of the church. I think, I think it is about time, and I'm going to editorialize something here, but I think it's about time that the church began to confess something about history instead of merely confessing things in a place like this where we all agree with each other. But out there in the streets, out there in the stores, out there in the frozen food section with Giant Eagle, okay? When we talk about history, when we talk about what all is going on in the world, we do so with the smell of, of, of God's Son on our tongue. And, and the people know where we stand, that there is a first in our life, and there is a last. He is the beginning. He is the end. Just kind of get into some history. And I mean, just read your Bible and watch how God orchestrates and pulls certain things. And we will talk about our country. And we'll talk about how it was founded and how it took place. And for 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 those who wanted to worship freely and the pilgrims and, and all that fun stuff that comes in between. But we have lost. Never mind. I'm, I'm not going to. He says. I am the one who is dead, and I am alive. This book is its the unfolding of history, or shall I say, to me, it's the interpretation of history in the light of the first and the last. It tells me this is happening today. And, and because of, of where we came from, it says the whole thing is summed up in a living person. He was dead. He's alive forevermore. And then there follows this symbolic picture of Christ and his church. You can't talk about the Christ who ascended without, in the same breath, talking about his church. The Christ who ascended just doesn't hang out there in time. The Christ who ascended has joined himself to millions of people so that speaking of the day of his glorious ascension, 
he said, in that day, I will be in you and you will be in me. I love that. He's in, in that day, the day of his ascension, you cannot speak of Jesus as just being there. In that day, he's always joined to his people. Now, there follows a, a, a very wonderful picture of Christ and his church. As you're taking notes, I, I would like for you to try to draw it if you can on your slide paper there because it would help you to see it. Remember, we are trying to see what John saw. You have seen, I'm sure, pictures or models of candlesticks that were in the temple. They were called the golden lampstands, not menorah, golden lampstands. So I, I, I say that because it had seven branches, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then the center one, seven. And, and, and there are, are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lampstands on the top. And all the arms of the lampstand are joined to a central stem. So every one of the sticks come, you know, come to the side of the stem, and the seventh, the, the, the one in the middle, and goes into the top of the stem. But all, all join into the stem. Now, take a look at what John saw. He said, I saw this one, and he understood he stood in the midst, well, he said, I saw this one, and he stood in the midst of the seven candlesticks, excuse me, or lampstands. Now, I am proposing to you because I tried to get into John's head and see this. And this is what I saw as I, as I continued to read that. I mean, he, he saw Jesus in that glorious picture. And he saw him, and, and Jesus was the central stem. And he saw all seven lampstands all connecting directly to Jesus. I, I hope you're following me. In, in the last verse of this chapter, which is the first vision, Jesus gives us, that's verse 20, by the way, gives us the interpretation to that vision. It is almost to sort of get us started, okay? More prime the pump kind of thing. It is going to be a whole book of symbols, but this is the first one, and he tells us what it means. He said the seven lamps are the seven churches. So you have the center, the glorified ascended Jesus, and vitally united to him are the seven churches. Not only is he the Lord of the church, which we have just seen with his white hair and the robe and of the judge of authority. Not only is he the Lord of the church, but he is also the life of the church. For out of him is going the life of those churches. Do you get that picture? So what does that say to us? It tells me that there is only one candlestick that's there it would be obviously ridiculous to say that there were seven there is one and, and yes one yet there's there's seven seven yet there's one I like to make things clear so it says he, he was writing to seven distinct local churches there were seven of them, yet they only made up the one total expression of the body of Christ in that part of Asia. And so, listen, wherever you find a local body of believers, they are the light of that area. They are a distinct entity, yet because they are connected vitally, mystically to the risen Christ, they form the parts, the one whole body of Christ all over this world. So uh, understand me as I get into this because the only source of life, the only source of authority to each distinct local church was and is the person of the ascended Jesus himself. There, 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 there was no star. Where were the stars? The, the angels, which we know are messengers or pastors. 
they were in his they were in his hand and so uh, again you don't have any star that's lording it over the churches and certainly the middle lampstand did not have a in if i could put it that way over the sixth one say each one was equal each found its own mystical union with christ the first the very first vision of the book of revelation says every church with all of its members, has a vital union. Not to one leader, not to any other church or to any other hierarchy outside of the church, but we are linked together to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice that every church is described as a light bearer. Notice this, when, when John, as a representative of all the believers, sees Jesus, he saw him shining as the sun. And when he saw the churches, he saw it as a candle or flickering light where? In the darkness. Uh, uh, Sun is for the daytime. Hello? Candle or lampstands are for what? The nighttime. When you and I look at Jesus Christ, we see him as the Lord Jesus Christ ascended in all the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, risen. The church only sees him like that, just the church. As Ephesians says, you are a child of the day. We are not waiting for the dawning. We are the children of the day. Oh, yes, we are. The sun has already risen in the face of Jesus Christ, but as far as the world is concerned, the only light that they see is the church. So the church is depicted as light in the darkness. Do you remember the words of Jesus in in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16? When he spoke to the Christians, those disciples, he said, you are the what? Light of the world. Now, the Greek there is intense. It's emphatic. And so it could be rightly translated as you are. And you alone are the light of the world. It's an awesome thought. When you think about it, you and you alone are the light of the world. They they don't see the ascended Christ. You, You do get that. Remember, not one unbeliever saw Jesus after he had risen. Only the believers saw Jesus after he was risen. That's that's why I don't, you know, if that had been me, I'd have gone to Caiaphas and Pilate and went, poof. (laughs) But they didn't believe. They heard of. Look, the unbelievers only saw the church in action. All they could ever say is that, by what name do you do these things, right? All they could say is is that you have filled Jerusalem with all of your doctrine. All they could say is, we command you never to speak about the resurrection or about that man named Jesus again. And all the church could do was go, because they had seen it. The world was threatened because there was a light flickering rather strongly in Jerusalem that gave them the distinct impression that the church had seen more than they had seen. The world will never see the joyful vision of Jesus that you and I have seen. Our our spirits know that we 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 know we walk out into this world and we act in such a fashion, we, we, we talk in such a way that, that, that there follows us certain signs and of such fashion that they get a distinct impression that we have been, that we have seen the sun. And the result is that, there, that we are a candle in the darkness. I believe that's what it's saying. Of course, once you are a light in the darkness, the result of darkness is that it hates you. 
if you spend a couple days in intense darkness and someone flips on the neon lights, it's going to hurt. And for those people who have been in darkness and the light comes on, I mean, that, that hurts. I mean, turn the lights out. That's all they care about. Just shut them off. Turn them down. Shut them off. Get rid of them. getting woken up in the morning when it's, you know, you've been sleeping in the dark and then it flips the light on to wake you up. Oh, gosh. Out there in the world, it seems like all the light of God has been turned on and, and there rises from within the darkness a hatred for church, for his church. See, the fact that we are united to Christ is that we are shining in the world. And, and, and therefore, the world hates. I mean, you talk about the hatred of, of Christ is taken out on his church. Don't get me started. I, this place is like it's squirrel real easy. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I have a real tough time. <laughs> Say that for a Sunday message, how's that? But, but I'm just I'm just saying the world hates Christ and that hate is taken out on his church. And the darkness tries to shut the church down, shut the church up, turn the church around, call them, you know, anything from homophobics to making sure that kids' sports are now taking over what Sunday school used to take over. There's a reason behind it. There's a, there's something www.exhibit.com. Okay, going on. Let me say this. If it wasn't for Christ, we would not be touched. So that is why Jesus accused Saul of Tarsus. If you remember, to give you the example, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? Because he wasn't touching the Christians. He was touching Christ that he saw in the Christians. That, that's why he speaks to the seven churches. This vision is the peculiar message of Jesus to his church. The rest of the book will deal with the world as well as we get into it. But this is the first introductory vision. Is Jesus talking to a church that's been beaten up, losing their jobs, remember? Thrown out of their homes and, and living in caves, dying for the sake of the gospel. They're banished to an island. You're, you, you're hurt, you're, you're, you're beaten, you're, you're persecuted. I mean, yeah, you're a lampstand that stands in the darkness, and the darkness, they don't like you. But understand the honor. <laughs> understand, if you will, the dignity that is ours, that is yours, for they would never touch you except that you are vitally and you are mystically united to that central stem of the candlestick who is none other than the sun shining in all of his brightness. So, so we start to see the picture, okay? Here are the seven churches, seven very real churches, and, and from the outside there is coming a very real devil with very real persecution through very real governments. And with them there is a working, there is the working of, of the world, the, the flesh, if, if you would, and here the central stem of the candlestick is reaching into this one and saying, Ephesus, I have something to say to you. Pergamus, I have something to say to you. Now, now look, Philadelphia, don't, don't worry. I, I know they're trying to shut the doors, but I have doors that are open and no man can shut them. So he goes from church to church, who is, he, I mean, he who is their central stem, their life, their, their Lord, he says, there is Satan coming at you, but don't worry. Now, now watch, watch it, because if you are to carry on as you are, you know, doing in some, I'm going to take you away. And it unfolds. The message of the stem of the candlestick to the lampstands. He is telling them 
it only looks as if the world is triumphant. It isn't. Things are not what they seem to be. All that he asks of the church is that they maintain the mystical union to him. And as long as that is correct and in correct order, nothing from the outside can ever move them. It's as if he's saying, I'm going to give you a vision and show you that Satan has already been defeated. So you can relax about that. Don't get all uptight about the devil. He is already defeated. It's, it's over. I, I know it doesn't feel like it's over. It is done. So don't worry about him. I know the world is ferocious and, and the world is, is breathing fire all over you now. You pour a little candlestick and you just, you just feel like you're melting away. Don't worry. The world is already defeated. When I rose, I told you, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's all right. It's, it's all done. Don't worry about the world. I will handle that. I have a sword coming out of my mouth, and I have burn, brandished feet. Don't, don't worry about that. We will handle the world. What I am really afraid of is that, you know, that woman on the beast, the world, the seductress from, from, from the inside. Church, listen, you had better take account of that. Watch, pray. Watch that the mystical vital union is kept fresh and that it's kept real all the time. That is the message of the seven churches. I personally, I'll be honest with you, just to add this in, I don't see anything symbolic in these seven churches because they were seven very real churches to which this book went. He is telling them, now you better shape up, Ephesus. I, I want you to remember you have lost your first love. You are becoming very formal, very legalistic. In fact, you have fallen in the ceremony and have a tendency to be pharisaical. I find it amazing back in Acts chapter 19 that they, you know, they, they so loved the risen Lord. Remember that? They had they lived in, in, in a, they had this fervor of, 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 of towards of love towards him. I mean, they, they, they even got in the town square and brought all their magic books together and set them all on fire, had a big bonfire. I mean, they were having revival in, in Ephesus, and it was there that the great riots to the goddess of Diana occurred. Remember, you're dealing with revival. When was that? That was 55 A.D., 40 years before that, before this. 40 years, 55 to 95. Ephesus, you've lost your first love. Repent or you're going to have your church removed. Forty years. They had not become apostate. I mean, they were still in the first wave of their uh, of, of renewal. Smyrna, they were under heavy persecution because they would not join the unions, and so it was a word of comfort to them. Pergama, they had yielded on the inside to the world system and, and, and the flesh in the same way Thyatira had. Sardis had been attacked on the inside by false religions. And Philadelphia was quivering, basically. They were just shaking in their boots under heavy persecution. Laodicea, it had its bingo parties. It rolled in its influence and said, we are the best. We are the biggest. I mean, did you see our attendance last night? I mean, we had to break in the three different services with the lights and the cameras and all. And there is no more, you know, realize in what, there's no one I swear, quoted Jesus said, I have excommunicated the entire church. There is no more church in Laodicea. However, if anybody would hear my voice above all your committee meetings and and, and, so, and, and so forth. I'm on the outside of the church here, guys. I am standing on the outside of the door knocking, having excommunicated you all. And if you want to start a new church, come. You and I will sit down and we'll sup together. It is quite a list of seven real churches. 
every one of them that existed in that day in the condition that I've spoken of at that time can be found among us today. I do not believe it is true that you find seven ages of the church history. I believe that at any time in church history, you can find an emphasis. At any time in church history, you can find a Laodicea. I believe it is totally untrue to say that we're living in the Laodicea age. Uh, no, uh, it's almost, you know, I, it's almost slanderous kind of thing to say that. I, I, can, I can take you to plenty of Laodicean churches. However, I can take you to a lot of Philadelphia churches as well. They're, they're all here today. God is speaking to the church. Remember, the blessing is for all ages. Wherever I find myself, the book speaks to me. And right in this room, you, you know that you are an individual as well as along with the other Christians. You and I and all of us are mystically, vitally united to Jesus Christ. It is a great sense of relief. You are mystically united to him. It's that relief that God did not give us some hierarchy to, to lord over us. It is also an awesome responsibility that he is Lord, that he lords over us, and his words are a sword, and he comes to find us where we are. He wants us, he, well, not wants us, he warns us that outside influences have all been dealt with. Don't worry. You are going to get enough visions after this to make you laugh for joy. But we better deal with you first, is what he's saying. We need to deal with you first because that is where you have something to do. And so he gives us those seven letters. And at the end of the letters, he said those words. He who hath ears to hear. That doesn't mean to say if you have something hanging on the side of your head. Those ears are physical. They pick up physical vibrations. Not everyone has inside ears. That is why he says if you have ears. Jesus said my sheep do what? Only sheep in the shepherd's flock have spiritual ears. That was something God gave you when you were born again. You grew ears on the inside. Listen, the mark of a born-again person is the ability to hear what the Spirit is saying. Boom. Got my ears. If you've got ears, Jesus said, use them. See, with those inside ears, you hear things maybe you don't want to hear. And as, you're, as, 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 as with all this, you have to choose to hear it. Even if you're choosing to hear, I mean, like you're choosing to hear what I'm, I'm saying to you right now. I mean, my words might be filling your ears, yes, but it's up to you whether or not you choose to hear it. With inside ears, we hear the voice of God. I, I would not have liked to have been the pastor at Laodicea. <laughs> Can you imagine that document on a Sunday morning coming in? Got to read it to him. Under the church of Laodicea, fasten your seatbelts. This is for you. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Only a, a percentage of the Laodicean congregation would choose to hear what the ascended Christ had said to them. Down through church history, only a percentage has chosen to hear what the Spirit says. The awful warning of those churches was that unless they repented, he would remove their candlestick from its place. If you were to go to Ephesus today, the ruins are there. But you're not going to find a strong Christian church. In fact, over the centuries, it has been removed. Go, go to Thyatira or, or Pergamum. The ruins are still there, but the candlestick was removed. 
for where you have a company of people who are not vitally now united to Jesus Christ, you do not have a church. It's gone. Uh, you know, I've, I've given that example of a can of pork and beans, right? You go to a, a, a garbage dump, and you look there, and you see a can of pork and beans, and you go, ooh, pork and beans. Then you go over and you pick it up, and it's empty. There's no pork and beans inside. And there are buildings scattered all over this land, and on the front of them it says church. Church. And, and the thing about that is, it tells me that once upon a time there used to be pork and beans in that can. And one time or another there were people in that church. Up and down the street in the city, San Diego, there are a lot of cans. <laughs> the very existence of those cans and the words church written on the outside tell me again that once upon a time, Christians were in there. The place would not have been built if it wasn't so, but that does not speak in any way to present moments. A candlestick many times has been removed. A church, let me say this nice and slowly, a church is constituted by a company of people who are vitally, mystically, through the new birth, joined to Jesus, and anything less than that is not a church. Solemnly, the risen Lord came to each one of those candlesticks. And though in the condition they were, yet they still had spiritual ears. They're glowing fast. And the avalanche here has begun, but they still have ears. And he said, he who has an ear, let him hear, or the awful result will be that there will be no candlestick here soon. So, we have been presented with a symbol. And I think it speaks very well for itself. It is a symbolic symbol. It is a glorious one, even as the central figure of that vision is solemn and it's awful it's glorious and beautiful. It is the only time in the book, the only vision in the book that makes a believer cringe if they really understand it. All the others make you dance for joy, but this one makes you cringe. This is the first vision. That's what we've covered tonight. Because without this one being heeded, understand this, all the other stuff means nothing. The beast is overcome. The world is already defeated. Satan is already done. But so what if the church is not vitally united and linked to the ascended Lord? So what? So let me finish with these words. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Amen. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your leading and guiding. I pray Continue to stir our hearts and speak to us this night. I pray you will bless them, encourage them, wisdom and understanding be upon them, prosper them, enlarge them, protect them and keep them safe. Impart your health to them. Bless them in their coming ins and their going outs and all that their hand finds to do. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Can we give him praise? Amen. Homework assignment. Are you ready? Please read chapters 4 and 5. That's what we're going to cover next week. Chapters 4 and 5. The next vision. So we're going to start getting in some of the meat of this. We're going to have some fun. Right. Would you stand with me? Just like anybody else who reads Revelation, they get started in the beginning of Revelation because they can kind of understand it to a degree. 
And then by the time they get to the fifth, sixth, seventh chapter, they quit reading Revelations because that don't make any sense to me. Stick with us. Walk through this with us, and you're going to have an understanding and a joy and an excitement that you didn't know was there. And we'll show it in a minute. We've blessed you. We've encouraged you. Greet one another. These altars are open. If you'd like to find a place of prayer, we're here to pray with you. But do me a favor. Turn to somebody nearby and say, you don't look like you're awake. God bless you guys.